As you turn to James chapter 4, again I'm using the Pullman Christian Standard Bible today. Test driving it, I really liked how it handled these verses. I want to start by letting you know up front, I'm sorry, because this is going to hurt. And as one pastor says, I love you, that's why I yell at you. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure I'll eat my words on a later day, but this has probably been one of the hardest sermons I've preached until the next one comes along. Just keep in mind that the Word of God has authority, and not me. (laughs) I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Lord's Word today in James chapter 4. James writes, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously, but he gives greater grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, this is a message, this is a lesson that you have taught me that I hope and pray it doesn't take my entire life to to obey, but it seems so far for me. Father, remind us as you reminded us in the psalm, that your love endures forever. Remind us that you've given us the grace, you've given us the Holy Spirit, you've given us Jesus Christ to do everything we need to obey your word here. Father, may we receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. Father, would you get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire today? Please do not hold back. Give us the full force of your glory and your passion. Have your way, we pray, and we pray against the enemy who has no say here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have up here a picture of just the amazing scenery at where Phil, Bonnie, and Christy, and Calvin and I went to earlier in July, Glacier National Park. We went in July because it was in fire last September, 
and it caught on fire again this year, so I'm glad we went in July. Isn't it amazing? Waterfall there. I like it. I couldn't decide what pictures to use. Maybe you would have preferred a glacial hill. Maybe the glacial hills or the waterfalls aren't impressive to you. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've been to the ocean. Pick your favorite spot on planet Earth. <laughs> An ocean, a ski lodge on a snowy mountains. Maybe you're simple. Just bring you back to your childhood farm. Whatever floats your boat. John Piper once wrote, The really wonderful moments of joy in the world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or standing before the Glacial National Park there and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside ourselves. You see, I was not at Glacier looking at these huge mountains, lakes, waterfalls, wonderful scenic views and saying to myself, man, I'm so awesome. I really cannot wait to see a mirror again. That would be horrible. I would miss the amazing creation testifying to the glory of God, so Psalm 19 tells me, because I'd be so focused on me. And as we enter into James 4 today, I want you to hear it with this in mind, mostly, there is bigger fish to fry. <laughs> you and I, when we come to God, we come into the presence of God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Let me say that again as you think about those words. The whole earth is full of His glory. <clears throat> He is the Grand Canyon, Glacier National Park, every beautiful thing on earth a million times over. He is massive and big and huge, and we can be a bunch of people thinking about ourselves standing before the most amazing being outside of creation, rather, creation's creator itself. And James, as you have already noted as we read this, is the angry coach in the locker room, grabbing us by the collar, shaking us, slapping us in the face. You have the privilege of being in God's kingdom. Wake up. James starts it this way. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. James, some commentators take James 4, 1 through 3, and they tack it really as an extension on what we were talking about two weeks ago in James 3, 13 through 18. If you remember, we were talking about worldly, ungodly, so-called wisdom of what I called hill dyers, people who die on hills, <laughs> and self-promoters. They're dying on hills really to promote themselves, versus the godly wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And James was telling his readers, be peacemakers, cultivate peace. And so then as we head into the first part of chapter 4 here, James is returning back to the, the reality that he's talking to a divided community of believers he's addressing. And he's saying, here's why you're fighting so much. 
There are cravings and passions at war within you. For the hill dyers and self-promoters, sometimes these cravings are notoriety, fame, power. Those who say, I have the right idea here, listen to me. And so they're dying on hills, they're being martyrs, they're trying to bring everyone else up to their standards. And it's coming from a heart that wants to be recognized, not necessarily a heart that's honoring God or guarding the sheep. We come before God and we have the fallen nature still at war within us. What Wayne read for us in Romans 7. That law of sin waging war in our soul. We don't know the exact problem that James was addressing in the folks reading his letter, but it's kind of useless to speculate because we do know the products of their division all too well. You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Now some people believe, and I'm not one of them, you're welcome to believe this if you want to, that James is speaking literally here. Some will say that, well, the early church did have Jewish zealots, and so taking a brother's life in the faithful community, murder, that could have happened. I think James is speaking a little bit exaggeratively, and just as Jesus says in Matthew 5 that hatred in the heart is really already murder, so brothers in faith were showing that much animosity, that much hatred, and in essence these wars and battles and heated arguments and church divisions were, spiritually speaking, murders taking place. And we need to see it that way. For those of us, whenever we have arguments with one another. I do feel blessed at Woodland Friends because I have seen heated arguments, and I usually see those same folks having heated arguments, laughing around the table and loving each other in potlucks. <laughs> that's, a, that's a grace of God that we can thank God for. But when arguments spring up in the body of Christ, they come from cravings. They come from passions at war within us. And so James kind of in a ninja sort of way, kind of in a sly and sneaky sort of way, he proposes something. Listen to this last part of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Have you ever thought about that in your Christian walk anywhere? See, I grew up Nazarene, and kind of our big deal was Christian moral perfection, which means if we don't feel guilty, we're not trying hard enough. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad caricature. <laughs> but what I never did, and I don't think I received it from any teaching in the church, just kind of, you know, how you pick up things by osmosis, or I don't know, it maybe came from somewhere. But I, I got the idea that I shouldn't ask God for things, especially material things, or, you know, make wishes. And it kind of spilled over into even maybe godly, upright, righteous things I never asked for. Now, I've gotten better at this, and I always intercede for folks that, to come to know Jesus. But just for an example, I met up with a local pastor a while ago that I'm going to name Harry because who it was isn't important for this illustration. So Pastor Harry's in town and I see Harry getting out of his vehicle and I say, where'd you get that? That's a new vehicle. Well, he tells me, the first thing he says, I asked God for it. And he provided. And Harry went on to tell me that he kind of received the vehicle in a really good deal, kind of unexpectedly, privately from people he knew and trusted. And now he has a better vehicle. And it really never occurs to me to pray for things like that. <laughs> for Harry, 
He needed a more reliable vehicle to get from point A to point B to care for his family. So sure, why not? God's a good father who gives good gifts. And so James is, in essence, bringing this up. You do not have because you do not ask. And then James really reveals what the lesson here is, because what if the people do ask? What's the problem then? Verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Here's what I think James is saying, and here's how I think you and I can practically internalize and use this lesson. Listen to this. Next time you have an argument, whether it be at church, maybe with a Christian brother or sister, or, you know, maybe you have a longing in your life, I dare you to start praying and asking God to work on your behalf. James, excuse me, John tells us in his letter, 1 John 5, 14 through 15, he says, now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. Here's the point. Sometimes I don't bring my prayers to God because even before I get there, the Holy Spirit reveals to me this isn't something for God's glory. This is something for your own pleasure that doesn't glorify God. Period. And so, if you take your problems, your tiffs, your arguments, your longings to God and you ask Him to act, this is a process where God can have a purifying influence on our desires. You get that? Eventually, we might come to God and realize you're not acting on my behalf because you shouldn't. <laughs> and you don't need to. One of my commentaries says it well. God's goal is not to give human beings what their own impulses demand. His goal is that human beings will learn to love what he loves. It is not that God does not want people to have pleasure but that he wants to train them to take pleasure in what he knows is truly good. You hear that? And I think a lot of times we hear teaching like this, and, and we go back to the bad caricature I just said, well, if I don't feel guilty enough, I'm not trying hard enough. No, maybe it's God training us. I got something a whole lot better for you. <laughs> you're, you're digging around in a pop can cabinet, and I have some great wine. <laughs> So now that James has us thinking about these things, hopefully for his audience, the proverbial weapons are being laid down and they're saying, okay, maybe God can fight whatever battle I have for me. And maybe, maybe when they realize that arguing over the, the carpet color of the sanctuary is a matter of personal opinion and not of godly concern, or arguing over the small stuff, the petty things, the little things, is tantamount to thinking about oneself in the presence of the Grand Canyon. Then, James grabs him by the cuff of the shirt and begins the chewing out. He says, Adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. If you and I profess to be the bride of Christ, and bride means lover, loyalty, commitment, and submission, where he goes, we go, where he stays, we stay, his passions and our passions are supposed to meld as we become one flesh, we've left our parents, the flesh, and our lodgings, 
We are in the world, but no longer of it, to join her husband. And James slaps a bunch of so-called Christians who are arguing because we're so smart and we got it all figured out and we start idolizing our so-called wisdom and in the process demonizing anyone else who disagrees. And thankfully, instead of pushing us into the Grand Canyon, James crabs us by the shirt and convicts us, cheaters, adulteresses, you've taken a lover on the side. Well, that's a little unmerited, James, we might say. And James explains, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? What is the world? The world in the scriptures, especially the book of John, takes on this picture of the corrupt system. Everything that's in rebellion, rebellion against God. And friends, we're in rebellion against God. And what James is saying to a people in a fellowship is that you've taken your eyes off of, off of God and thus your commitment now is not first and foremost to God, it's to your new lover. Most often that's ourselves. Sometimes it's a passion. The human heart is an idol factory. We can produce them just as quickly as Detroit produces cars. And this is no small thing. It's treason. What does this look like today? Well, let's return to how I framed this. So here's the Grand Canyon. God, His Son Jesus, His forgiving us of our sins, His giving us His Holy Spirit, His giving us the mission to save the world, His commissioning us to be His disciples, that is to learn about Him and His ways and do what He says, His giving us this mission field, woodland and the world. His peeling back of the curtain and revealing to us the big picture. People being saved for Him. People being restored and redeemed and remade into completion by His namesake. People being saved through Jesus. People becoming more like Jesus. People being ushered into His presence forever. And we're invited and we're commanded to be a part of this great commission. We're told to be inviting people into this kingdom, to be teaching people to be part of the kingdom. It's the Grand Canyon. And what James is saying in his rebuke, he's telling us that we look at the Grand Canyon and Grand Canyon, and meanwhile we're saying, yeah, I like my house, I like my car, I like my easy chair and my TV and my movies, I like my simple life and my job, and I like my friends, and I like my vacations, and I like my money, and I like my books, and I like my family, and we miss out on the mission. We miss out on the Great Commission. And in order to feel a little bit concerned about his mission, we'll have a little bit of passion about what happens at the church because we incorrectly see church as a building we come to once a week or an institution that we're a part of and we need to be invested in, much like we're invested in a job, and we'll say, hey, I wanted to go that way because I care about it. But we're not fooling God. We don't care. We just want to have a little say about something at the church to feel like we do care. And to feel like we're not missing out on his mission. And to feel like that we're not thinking about ourselves in front of the Grand Canyon. It's lukewarm. It's misplaced. And it is blatantly hostility towards God. 
So I got a little bit of the world in me. So you got a mistress on the side. And you're saying, God, I don't see you as altogether glorious. God, I don't see you as preeminent. I don't see you as the husband I submit to. I don't value you solely and entirely. I don't want your kingdom come, and I don't want your will to be done. I don't feel the urgency that those in rebellion against you are dying and headed for an eternity without you, and I really don't care because I think I'm saved. And I fool myself into being saved because I died on my hill down at the church. And meanwhile, God sees you as a hostile, an enemy. You're against my mission, is what God is saying. I've come to earth, I've died for your sins, I've given you a new life, I invited you to partake in complete joy and salvation, and life, and the bread of heaven, and to find satisfaction and redemption, and you're concerned about your little comforts and conveniences that the world offers you. They're merely cheap knockoffs that don't satisfy, and you choose them over me. I've called you to be on mission to extend this to others, to be concerned about others and to see them as I see them. But that's asking too much whenever I've given you my life. We're enemies of God. We're coming to a building that claims to be his church, part of his mission, and we're sabotaging his mission. If people come here and join our version of it, we've become enemies. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? James is saying this likely in a general way and that he's not referring to a verse verbatim in the scriptures but a concept certainly fleshed out in the scriptures. It's the same idea of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. It's denoting God's judgment over the believer who is proverbially at the Grand Canyon consumed with their own greatness. In the presence of God Almighty thinking about themselves. It's the jealousy of God that is provoked within him in places like Deuteronomy 32, 21. God says, they have provoked my jealousy with their so-called gods. They have enraged me with their worthless idols. So I will provoke their jealousy with an inferior people. I will enrage them with a foolish no 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 nation. <laughs> As you can see, this is very easy for me. But we need to saturate in the words of conviction that James has for us here. We can say we serve God all we want. We can say that we have theology and beliefs nailed down. We can say that we're in the church every time or most times the doors are open. But at the end of the day, if idols have our heart, if we're sleeping around with the world, James tells us adulteresses. We're hostile towards God, we're enemies of God, and he's not shrugging compassionately, saying, it's okay, take more mistresses. His jealousy is provoked. He made us to have fellowship with him. He crossed the divide of heaven to earth for us. He left the perfect kingdom of heaven for the world of sin for us. He became flesh, suffered the beatings of sinners, died the death of criminals, satiated the very wrath of God on our behalf. And paid in his perfect blood so that he might take us back to himself as his bride. And we have the audacity 
to argue over petty issues, preoccupy our minds with idols and idleness, than to be about his mission. Because we'd rather watch TV than save souls from the fires of hell with the truth of our great God and Savior. Because we'd rather spend our money on more useless things than to support the great mission of saving the world that God's given us, the honor and the privilege and the task of. Because we'd rather spend our days in comfort and security because that's what God did when he made himself vulnerable and gave himself up for us. Friends, how do we change? Here's how some people would tell you to change. To just break under the weight of conviction. To be moved to stagnation and despair and to sit solemnly and endlessly under the weight of your sin and to not stir or to even lift your eye to think that God might forgive you for such treason. Thankfully, that's not what James says. Sure, there is a time for contrition. But repentance starts where the gospel starts. Grace. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God's grace is greater. Can you say that with me? God's grace is greater. What does James mean here? That though James reveals to us the extent of our depravity, though he rightfully points out that we be adulteresses, guilty, harlot brides, and we be hostile to God and against his kingdom and against our king, and we be downright enemies of God, his very opponents, his grace is greater. God wins. His grace wins. His grace covers any sin. God can take the harlot, the enemy, and the hostiles and turn them into the faithful bride. His wrath is directed and channeled within the boundaries of His love and grace. And if you and I are struck by this, we can follow this proverb here. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're sitting in your seats, smug and proud, it's a good thing this sermon isn't about me. It's about time Pastor Kevin pulls the rest of the congregation into submission. It's about time Pastor Kevin preaches that good sermon that he really needs to hear himself. Or if you're thinking, what's God doing meddling in my business? Who is he to tell me what to do? That's your call. Just know that God resists you. You resist him, he will resist you. And that is the resistance of Almighty God, who is provoked to jealousy and hands over his enemies to their sought-after ends. And you are in the path of the wrath of God. But for the humble, there is grace. Greater grace. For those who say, this describes me. I think there's a reason why I got sick and I took two weeks to write this sermon and just couldn't preach it. If we say, I've done this to God. I've sinned and I've sinned greatly. I've whored around after other things. I've sat in the presence of God consumed with myself. I've called myself a believer and a disciple of God and considered that the easy chair and arguing over money and politics at the church were really my gifts to give to his kingdom. God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace. 
What does this humble look like in this situation? And I believe James spends the latter half of this first section of James 4 telling us, he says, therefore submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Verse 7 is in some ways the antithesis of verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that friendship with the world is hostility towards God, so whoever wants to be the world's friend become God's enemy. Whereas the grace of repentance says, or the grace enables us and gives us the option to choose here, submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have two options every day, friends, God or the world, light or darkness, truth or lies, selfless love or selfish love, serving others or serving self. And James implores, and the Holy Spirit urges, and I plead with myself and with you, submit to God. <laughs> but it's scary, he's calling me to blank. Submit to God. But then we'll have to have real conversations and stop talking about the color of the carpet. Submit to God. But what if he's directing me to love on this neighbor that I'd rather not love on? Submit to God. What if he continues changing my life? I don't like change. <laughs> Submit to God. What if he's telling me that Christianity is not a life of just merely avoiding bad things, but a life of pursuing good and weighty things, a life of action? Submit to God. And this is where I struggle. I think it's been made aware to me lately that we are to actively resist the devil. Now, I think some people make too much of the devil, that Satan's behind literally every cat up in a tree. But then I think a lot of people make too little of the devil, and I think that's where I err. The devil here is the word accuser. And I'm not saying that James is not referring to Satan, God's enemy. He is. He can be. But accuser is very namely for him. And I've found that the devil, the accuser, whether it be the devil himself or thoughts and accusations that are demonic in origin... The accuser does not want you or me to figure out that we're not supposed to accept Jesus merely as a train ticket to heaven <laughs> and then spend our time talking about nonsense at the church while ignoring our commission to not just have a church and be nice, but to go and teach. You know, you know, leave the church, talk to others, teach others to love Jesus, and as soon as we start on that commission, the accuser likes to say things like, you're not qualified to be that holy, <laughs> You don't have what it takes to answer God's call here, you sinner. Are you kidding me? Look at your checkbook. Your treasure is movies, coffee, and other things you don't want the pastor to know about. So, your treasure isn't God. Just keep showing up at church, warm the seats, cry in sermons like these, laugh at Kevin's jokes. But for the big scary stuff, God does not call sinners like you. Just saints better than you. Accuser. Resist him. You have God Almighty, who is not Satan's equal, but his maker, and Lord over him, rebellious though he is. 
You have God who became flesh for you, died for you, has given you His grace and His Spirit to be what He made you to be. A proactive disciple of the Messiah and an ambassador for Him who has the privilege and honor to carry the good news to the ends of the earth. God made you. God's saved you. He's your righteousness. He forgives you. He'll use you. Resist the devil. God's grace is greater than anything the enemy would ever accuse you of. His native language is lies. And so the junk he's accusing you of, he doesn't have a clue about. And as for answering God's call and you being unqualified, that just happens to be God's signature throughout the Bible. Calling people who don't have one shred of qualification on their resume, so people will know that it was God who was doing the work. So resist the devil. But it goes further. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is timely because James and the Holy Spirit has brought to mind the necessary truth and weight of our Almighty God provoked to jealousy by sin and enemies who resist him. Now, I have had many other illustrations since Monday morning, but I'm still going to go with Monday morning. Calvin was acting up. He didn't eat his breakfast. And so he was not doing what his parents told him, and so discipline was taking place, culminating in a good spanking and a timeout, him sitting on the couch. He cried on the couch. I went over to him after a long time and did what I always do and softly told him, I do not like spanking you, but you need to obey when your dad and mom tell you to do blank. And as I think about the contrast, about the necessity to be in a position of authority and disciplinary, and then the joy that it is to be a loving comforter and a voice of reason. So it is with God on a much greater level. See, we must know God's holiness and his righteous position of being one who has the right to be provoked to jealousy and wrath when a perfect God who does not tolerate sin is sinned against. But similarly, he enjoys, and in fact he has revealed, it is his central attribute, and I think you got that in the psalm today, his love that channels and keeps in order every other attribute. And so for the humble and the repentant to draw near to God, we will find that it is is his very nature to draw near in return. See, I love Calvin, and though I discipline him, I cannot fathom a time where if he were to ever come to me, especially in humility, that I would ever reject that. God is more perfect than I, and it is his nature to receive the meek and lowly. It is his nature to offer grace to the humble. It is his nature to say to those of us who might say, I have sinned, and I just can't stop sinning, and I want to stop sinning, and I want to be everything you want me to be. God says, my grace is sufficient. It is greater than your need. It will meet you. I will receive you. Do you hear that? He will draw near in return. But before we believe that God's grace is a license to sin, or that his grace means that we don't have to change, we just somehow ambiguously draw near, and he draws near, and job's finished, and wow, I feel better, thanks Kevin. James, as he has done thoroughly well throughout the whole book, makes sure we know that there is action, change, effort, things we must do on our part in this humbling before God and drawing near to him. Namely, he says, At the middle of verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. 
Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jews, before praying, would wash their hands. This was a symbolic way to, and a reminder that approaching God meant that one must be pure. And symbolism and reminder, by definition, is supposed to symbolize a reality, <laughs> something that's actually taking place. Thus, when the proverb says to humble ourselves before the Lord, and when James says submit to God or draw near to God, James is hammering in the end of verse 8 on through the verse 10 that these are action words, that these words have very practical, very intense, and very personal expectations and things. James believes in and preaches, and the Holy Spirit believes in and preaches, and hopefully we all believe in and preach a very real faith, a very active faith. Faith, a very practical faith, which isn't all internal and intellectual and spiritual, but it spills out into the physical. It's the kind of faith that Noah had with which God said, build an ark, and so Noah built an ark. It's the kind of faith that Abraham had in which God said, go, leave your country and family, so he went and left his country and family. Or when was told to offer Isaac, though he really didn't want to, he brought Isaac to offer him. The point being is that if you and I receive this word today, and if we hear you're in the presence of something big, great, holy, massive, altogether holy, and somehow still infatuated with yourself, your own desires and passions, and we are convicted and told to repent, James is in essence saying to repent in faith looks like something. It has implications for you and your activity in your day-to-day life. It means that whatever is hindering you from God, whatever is, whatever is the outward activities that correspond to the idols that you have in your heart, they need, they must be dealt with. If we receive in faith that we've been enemies, and that we've been unfaithful lovers to God, if it's truly settled into us, that, then what are the normal responses to that? If Christy pulled me aside after church and said, you've been unfaithful to me, I know you have been because you've been here with blank. And I truly still had a heart that loves Christy. How would I respond? I pray by God's grace it would be misery, mourning, weeping, because it would be nothing to laugh about. God says to me, you keep showing up at church. You say you have faith, but at the end of the day, I see there's a lot more things that are more important to you. And we've been in this relationship where I've laid down my life for you, and I call you to lay down your life for me. I've been faithful. Can you be faithful again to me? Because there's grace enough for it. And that's all I can say today. Because now the ball's in your court, friends. You have... You have everything you need to be faithful. You have the grace given by God to respond in a way that's appropriate. Respond in a way that is active. Respond in a way where life does change. Where this is not just a received word, but an implanted word that has active, physical, practical implications. How can you be better on mission for God? 
What idols have taken hold in your heart to where God is not desired, enjoyed, or delighted in as much as he should be? What shows need to stop being watched? I know it means you might have to read your Bible during that time. What habits really need to end today? Today. What habits need to start today? Again, Christian life's just not a life of avoiding bad things, but doing good things. What habits need to start today? Who do you need to talk to? What do you need to start making plans for? By God's grace, let it start with, constantly be infused by, humble prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are intensely personal with us today. May we never forget that you've blessed us with the community as well. That we're not in this alone. Father, it's a lot of hard work you've lined up for us today. It's a tall order. Remind us of what that word grace means. Is our salvation in the balance? No. But our commitment, our loyalty, our honesty, whenever we've accepted you and called you Lord and Savior, you're bringing that before our eyes and say, did you, did you mean what you said here? Father, give us the grace that continues to sanctify us. I thought about what Jesus prayed, sanctify us with your truth. Your word is true. Father, would those of us convicted, if not all of us convicted today, would we learn to lean on you and to lean on brothers and sisters in Christ? To know that we're not coming to a place of judgment. But as Wayne read and reminded us today, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we're coming into a place of sanctification, which is sometimes hard. Because it means we have very real things we need to do in our day-to-day life in terms of putting away sin, putting sin to death by your grace. Taking up our crosses and following you. Father, would you give us the view of the Grand Canyon again? Would you realize that what you're calling us to is not a life of misery, but a life of everlasting joy? A life that is a lot better than we can imagine, even though it seems scary now, whenever we're viewing the Grand Canyon wholeheartedly, never do we lament, I'm so sorry that I'm here. So, Father, would you remind us that what you're calling us to is something deeper, greater, more satisfying, And a whole lot better than where we're at now. Because I don't think any of us would rather spend eternity watching TV. But we would be spending eternity doing things that make you happy and in the end make us happy. Father, would you give us the grace to repent today? Thank you for your love and your joy and your truth. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. Amen.